the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, what a delight as we head into the third hour, as we uh, typically do on Tuesdays with my dear friend uh, Hugh Hallman. He is the former mayor of Tempe. He is an attorney. He is an educator. He is a builder of projects and men and women. Society, that is to say, which we're going to talk probably a little bit about today. Hugh, how are you, Colt? Happy Arizona Statehood Day. Indeed, that is the most important years? thing. Well, uh, it was a, a family tradition. My mother, Arizonan, true and true, uh, through and through. Uh, family came to the state in the 1860s and uh, were married to folks who'd come 10,000 years before that. So we have deep roots in this state. And my mother never celebrated uh, St. Patrick's uh, Day or Valentine's Day or such things. She always had something to do with the state of Arizona. And this is and only is Statehood Day. Well, I am glad, at least to the Arizona State Democratic Party, that they are on board with celebrating the founding of something because I got a fundraising letter from them today, a fundraising email, all about how on this day of Arizona being admitted as the 48th state's anniversary, we should um, – we should. Uh, well, it says Arizona was obviously was admitted as the 48th state after a long road to statehood. We should take this opportunity to donate to the Democratic Party, and it just dawned on me – at least they're celebrating the founding of something. You will recall the Tucson Democratic Party last July 4th celebration was called F the 4th, uh, except they didn't just use the letter F. So at least it uh, looks like the state Democratic Party is pro-state rights. Is that what we divine from uh, Imagine this? that. Well, that was certainly <laughs> an early a, tradition. Yet another the, turn in the... <laughs> early tradition in uh, the Democratic Party yeah. in the South, at least. Exactly. Uh, and gave uh, a bad reputation to those folks who uh, understood and believed yep. it as an important philosophy. Yep. Instead, it was turned uh, by uh, the... Uh, Democratic Party in the South, that it meant that states' rights promoted racism. Well, they believed they trumped human rights. Uh, correct. Yeah. And and uh, as a result, perfectly brilliantly stated, uh, this would give me the opportunity to restate uh, a bit of your monologue uh, th from the first hour. Ladies restatement of torts? Okay. Restatement of torts. <laughs> restatement of uh, I, grievances? Okay. Yes, I, I hope not to commit tortious interference with uh, monologue history. <laughs> okay. But, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening now to the third hour, I commend your attention. Go back and listen to the first hour because Seth opens with his monologue that is particularly powerful and, in my view, really helps set the frame for the challenges ahead. And it is a monologue that is talking about the fact that words are being used loosely in a way that undermines their value, and specifically the word racism or, or words racism, racist, etc., are being used to bludgeon those who might oppose a view that currently is held by the left. And racism is the best... Uh, uh, Clang word, pejorative that you could come up with. Weapon. Yeah, I was, weapon. I was, I was thinking uh, of specific weapons, but we'll just stay with the generalized weapon mm -hmm. being used today against anybody from the right. So 
as I think your editorial uh, monologue really describes, when you overuse a word and apply it to things to which it does not actually apply, you are certain to dilute the value of that word and also cause confusion about what it ultimately means. So if Donald Trump is a is a Nazi, you have just not only called him something that used to have meaning, but you are now confounding uh, that concept for people who like Donald Trump thinking, well, then maybe I don't know what a Nazi is because Donald Trump seems to be OK by me. And therefore, maybe Nazis are OK when they're not. And so misusing a word has two edges to it that undermine it for those who use the word uh, to uh, attack someone who does not fit the description. You've now caused those who might agree with the person being attacked to undermine the value in their own heads and accept something that is absolutely abhorrent. Nazism is not acceptable in this society or any other. Any more than a totalitarian from the Soviet Union who's a communist, a communist uses the word socialism to uh, we call the, we use the word now normalize what communism is. Neither of those things, both of which are totalitarian variants, are acceptable, both of which led to the deaths of tens of millions of people. The Nazi party was patient in taking over Germany and had a trajectory of about 20 years to do that. That's another point I want to come back to. But in exercising that patience, took over a society filled with regular human beings. And one has to ask, how did Germany get there? And Germany got there because the Nazis, who were true Nazis, were very patient. And people who should have known better put up with it precisely because, number one, they didn't know the end game and became victims themselves. And number two, were willing to live with the consequences of the Nazi parties being in power because they just themselves wanted to survive. And exactly the same pattern occurred uh, in Russia and ultimately what became the Soviet Union as communists, uh, the uh, Mensheviks, and the Bolsheviks battled out who would take control of Russia and ultimately all of the so what became the Soviet Union and exercise patience. The Soviet Union didn't form up in a day. You had uh, revolutionary efforts in Russia over the fact that bread wheat prices were rising and bread prices were rising and poor people who couldn't afford bread joined that fight not understanding that the, at the end of the day they would become slaves to a society. And it's not a bit ironic that those very folks ended up suffering for another 40 years before the price of bread and the availability of wheat to make that bread reached the rate at which it was available during the czarist times that they were all fighting against. And so what we need to take from both of those lessons is language is important and shapes how we talk about these things. But we also need to understand the unintended consequences or, and frankly, with the Nazi Party and the Communist Party, the intended consequences of gaining power over lots of other people to force them to do as you would want them to do. And we're seeing that process being undertaken in this country today. It is an uneasy balance that exists in our country between liberty and order. It has existed for our entire history. And it is part of the design. Some people might say it's a bug. Some might say it's a feature. But it was to have the posts of that uh, cycle between liberty and order uh, available to us and society or the people in society could help work that system 
to reach a, a uh, balance that was appreciated at the time. But the structure of the U.S. Constitution was such that it would assure that we would stay within the two posts that create uh, that the goalposts for our society. And we've been tinkering with that system, with that structure, and the placement of those goalposts. Starting about a 100 years ago, we changed the constitutional provisions such that we've undermined uh, the position of those goalposts. And perhaps the most important one, about 110 years ago, was to create a U.S. income tax uh, as a constitutional matter. And as one example of how that has uh, turned uh, our society against itself, the federal government now use masses, uses massive amounts of money to bribe, to extort different results from the states that it otherwise is supposed to have an equal relationship with. Well, since the federal government has a taxing power over all 50 states and can amass wealth beyond what any specific state can do, you now have the federal government extorting uh, the states to force them to take actions that the federal government, currently at the, at the time I'm thinking of, then controlled by Democrats, and that was Medicaid expansion as one example. So now states were forced to deal with, as the state of Arizona was, as Jan Brewer as governor was, to decide whether to implement Medicaid expansion or not. I wrote an editorial that had me being called a rhino because I merely pointed out the fact that the federal government was extorting from the state of Arizona and every other state that you must take the money. Because if you did not take the Medicaid expansion money, the federal government would then strip away funds and effectively bankrupt a state's medical system, its insurance system for the poor. So the editorial I happen to write was, Jan Brewer has no choice. She must take the money. But if you want to fix this, we've got to fix our federal government. So here we sit today with Republicans controlling the House, saying that they now want to control the creation of debt for our country. And the Democratic Party and the president in particular are saying, no, 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 we must increase the debt limit before we talk about how much debt we're creating. Let me pause and that's you right something there. we yeah. need to come back to. Yeah, about. yeah, let's cut that. Wow. There was a seminar there on intro to poli sci. That was great, Hugh. And that ordered, we'll, we'll talk about a lot. You set a great table. He's Hugh Hallman. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. That would be uh, <laughs> bumper music for a Cincinnati radio show, which is a lot of fun. Hugh Hallman is our guest. Hugh, I can't uh, and I won't interrupt you. You're on a tear. Keep it going. The debate over the debt limit and the debt. Well, all of this. And the budgets. All right. So all of this is to tie together the fact that we were handed a structure, uh, a constitution that set goalposts between liberty and order. And those goalposts were devised by people who'd spent their lifetimes studying and thinking about these very issues. And over time, especially in the last 110 years, we have tinkered with that fairly carelessly. And as a result of providing the federal government with nearly unlimited resources and the ability currently to print money when it doesn't raise it directly through taxes, wants to reduce the pain on all of us, and so it'll still provide all the bennies and merely inflate the currency to make up for the fact that we're printing money that uh, wasn't pulled out of the system appropriately. 
My point being is, as we've tinkered with that system, we are now facing wider and wider swings in our political environment between liberty and order. And those swings are beyond where the goalposts originally were set. We see this now in the topic of your monologue about the use of language to bludgeon somebody with whom you disagree in order to achieve a political point and end to drive policy in the direction you want it to go. So COVID is our best, clearest example recently of how bad it can be. We had a federal government that was driven by uh, a panicked news media that wanted to push the left agenda that the federal government and ultimately states and local governments should shut down in the face of a novel coronavirus that we weren't sure what would happen. Now, I'll give you that among them, I had a business that I had to shut down by direct order from the governor of our state, cost 40 people their jobs. Ultimately, I had to shut it down entirely at the end of the day and, you know, cost a lot of money. That's that's what happens. But within about 90 days, we had a pretty good handle on the direction that this disease was going. And most important, who was at risk? And we had a very good handle discussed almost ad infinitum on this show with my son, Lewis, and you about looking at data to determine how best to create policy to address COVID. And some of the, the uh, items we were advocating for were that children were not at risk and children in school were not at risk. The adults were. And for the first time in U.S. history, we were using children as the battering ram to protect adults, as the excuse to protect adults. We were masking children who were not benefiting from masks, but in fact being harmed by masks in the name of protecting uh, 40, 50, 60-year-old teachers and their families. We talked very clearly about the fact that some children live in homes where there are people at risk, grandma and grandpa and others who who potentially would suffer from the disease if the child went to school and then brought it home. And we talked about that there are solutions for those kids that we could craft. But in the main line of our society, it was beginning to be quite clear early on that if you restricted children from going to school, you were denying those children the most important opportunity to grow as human beings. Because for those people who think the lessons that are taught in school are on the lesson plan and solely and uh, only provided by the teacher standing in the front of the classroom, you miss the point that thousands of lessons are being taught every single day to all these children. And if we're running the schools properly, they're learning uh, deportment and good human behavior and interaction. That's part of the reason we send our kids to school, so that they learn how to interact with other human beings. Even those of us who are introverts were forced into an environment in which we had to learn how to commune with others. Do you remember what the huge hit was against the homeschooling movement in its infancy from the public school establishment? That we would deny children we the opportunity. denying children socialization. Right. Right. That was the first. And suddenly right. that didn't matter because it was in the interest of the teachers union to allow teachers who didn't want to have to go into the classroom. Now, I just spent uh, this weekend with a long time Tempe teacher who was extraordinarily distressed about the fact that the students she taught at risk kids who were behind grade level used to be 10 or 15 percent of her population. They're now 50 percent of her population. She's just now retired. And 
the reality is we have an entire cohort of kids, especially those who are going into kindergarten and those who were in up to, say, third grade. That group of kids has now lost a couple of years of educational processing. And when people say they have a learning loss, the answer is you can't lose something you never got. They lost the opportunity to learn. We failed to teach them. And thinking that we were going to teach a bunch of kids online who, number one, already have attention deficit disorder uh, unmasked because of the way in which we're raising them these days with electronic devices and television, uh, we, we failed miserably. And the report card is telling us very clearly that uh, from one, you know, the most mild studies that are saying they're about a half a year behind to the likeliest and more extreme examples that we've perhaps lost two years. And for those kids in that earliest band, they are most at risk. And worse, isn't it ironic that anybody who advocated for opening schools was a racist because we didn't care whether or not the kids most at risk, the black and brown kids in public schools, would die? That's a lie. None of us sought that they die. We sought to make sure that their life would be full and complete and they could fulfill a future of success. And having been called a racist, having been pushed off uh, our national public radio system because I apparently don't understand that I'm not allowed to say these kinds of things, um, who do we now turn to to hold people accountable? How do we hold this government, the state, local, and federal government accountable? How do we hold those people who made these decisions and have destroyed many children's lives? And I say destroyed because the suicide rate is up, drug and alcoholism is up in young people. And that is a trajectory we're going to have a heck of a time changing. I left you speechless. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I want it to hang there. I, don't, I can't improve on it. Uh, no one could improve on what you just said. The cause, the spark that led, led me to all of this thinking and, and was the cause that you, you played off of was this now well-known former – president of branding at Levi Strauss, who exactly a year ago today was forced to leave her job, right? Because of all of this in San Francisco, this leftist, this left of left self-described person who supported Elizabeth Warren for president simply thought that the schools in San Francisco should, the public schools in San Francisco should be open. And that was what garnered her the epithet of, of racism. Uh, when words lose their meaning, people lose their liberty, Confucius uh, once said. Um, Emerson put it that uh, the fall of man is preceded by the fall of language. I'll return to the ordered liberty part in just a moment. But we've been on a long Orwellian march here uh, in doing just that. Um, my typical rendering of it is um, speech is now violence. Violence can be mostly peaceful. Uh, to ask someone to peacefully march is to encourage insurrection. I think my new favorite is uh, gender affirming, which is literally gender changing. Uh, keeping hands off a body is having clinicians operate in your body. You can thank Ibram Kendi and Robin DeAngelo for telling us that colorblindness is racism and discrimination is anti-racism. And maybe Joe Biden will get the message, but voter suppression evidently means more voters voting. So, you know, we have been on a long tear here, Hugh, that raises some interesting questions about the whole Madisonian project and this notion of ordered liberty. And we'll come back on all of this when we come right back.
Hugh Hallman is my guest, former mayor of Tempe, attorney, uh, civic uh, civic uh, c- activist, as well as a builder of civic institutions here and abroad. Uh, and an interesting story he is related as to why he does it um, in certain places abroad. We'll we'll get to that uh, either another time, if if not later today. But he's he's told you why um, in the past why it's so important to to build a, a freedom project elsewhere where people want it. Let's go back to ordered liberty. The phrase ordered liberty, um, if we can, which is uh, it, it it's a it's a it's a phrase that we use to describe generally what the founders were wanting. And it's a phrase that it's attributed to George Washington. And anyone who kind of thinks about that phrase for a moment realizes that there's an irony, a built-in tension between order and liberty, right? So we will have ordered liberty. Uh, the, the question that's that's we're now trying to, to grapple with when we look at study after study, which seems to be coming in droves now, you had cited a, a health and human heart services study, health and human services study um, from the CDC about youth depression and mental uh, health outcomes having increased during COVID. Just another one landed yesterday, the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. This, 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 this line in the story from CBS, quoting the medical director at the CDC, she says, quote, schools are on the front lines of the mental health crisis and they must be equipped with the proven tools that help students thrive. Well, being a school would be the first and being open would be the first. The other quote I got from a New York Times story from uh, a pediatrician was the pandemic led to more social isolation, a risk factor for depression, a risk factor for depression, social isolation. Hugh, we need to we need pediatricians to tell us this. All of this point about what you're saying with regard to accountability is because of this quest for, I guess, order, which people fell in love with, given their authoritarian personality complexes. It has led to the interesting thing that you think order is going to prevent, which is anarchy, which is um, insanity, which is – shall we say, uh, abnormal behavior. So when a teacher, like you stated, said that when she began and throughout most of her teaching career, some 15 percent of her student population might be considered at risk, which is a definable term, right? And I'm using air quotes. I shouldn't. It's it's a definable term. Technically below grade level. And her job was to bring them up to grade level in reading and math. Right. And Title I was all part of the effort to address at-risk youth. What do you do when at-risk becomes the norm? When at-risk, as you said, 50% of her students, it will soon be 55 or 60. What do you do when at-risk no longer is a phrase that matches what it's supposed to define because we have turned everyone into that population we used to say was the asterisk or the parenthetical or the footnote because in our quest for order, in our quest for control, we have created pandemonium. We have driven people literally crazy. That is what we have done in our over overuse of what should have been should have been ordinarily a punishment. The idea of a lockdown and a shutdown, that's what you do to prisoners. That is not the normal human condition. And this is why you saw such huge rates of alcoholism and other uh, abuses of crime in places like the Soviet Union. This notion of an all-controlling state will lead people to 
you know, I sometimes call it a uh, what? What? I, I give some, up. They resign. Yeah, I sometimes call it the complex of of anxiety or the complex of um, the complex of anarchy. But we have created probably a new a new a new social socialism in this country, not in the political sense, but in the human psychological sense. Absolutely, where we are now. Yeah, right. Where we are, we are now kind of having a, a social anxiety complex without even knowing it anymore. We we spent a couple of hundred years trying to train people to understand what it meant to be free right. and to take personal responsibility for their trajectory. And it hasn't taken very long, 50 to 60 years, to start the process. But in the current condition, the pandemic was used in order to create an entire society of people who are now dependent on the state. We have lots of folks who now are not showing up to their jobs, don't think they should. It's now a right to stay home and get fed, uh, although somebody has to bring your food to you during the pandemic. I want to, before we lose it at this break, point out one thing that our pediatrician said, that the pandemic led to these problems. The pandemic didn't lead to it. Bad policymaking by bad policymakers led to those conclusions, and that's what I mean by holding people accountable. Those people who took the pandemic and used it as the tool to create a totalitarian ends because they believe they're smarter and more capable of making decisions than human other human beings in our society. And too many people decided to become sheep in that process and allow that to happen because it's a lot easier to turn over your life to someone else than it is to take personal responsibility. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Hugh Hallman and I are discussing how a society corrects itself uh, and recognizes its need to correct itself when what we used to describe here as the crisis industrial complex has become, I hate the phrase, but it's eminently true, the new normal, uh, the, the, the frenzy, which, you know, we, uh, we used to build asylums for the frenzied. It's, it's a state of mental disorder where the frenzy has become dominant. Um, you no longer have, well, it's, it's, the, asyl- it's, it's, it's the old Edgar Allan Poe story about, uh, about uh, uh, Professor Tarr and Professor Feather, uh, which gave us the phrase of the inmates taking over the asylum. And the doctors became the inmates. They were good doctors, um, became the inmates, and the inmates became the administrators. And we have seen that. Using a pandemic, don't let a crisis pass without taking greatest advantage of it if you're in the totalitarian frame. If your desire is to exercise more power and believe that you can exercise it more effectively than those who are beneath you, you'll do it. And this is the piece for conservatives, and I've always bristled a little bit at the use of the word conservative, and I call myself a, a libertarian conservative because I push towards that liberty envelope edge, that um as as this process went on, and those of us who were fighting against this slide, you recognized how many people were willing to buy in to the crisis and how many people were willing to use the crisis to advance their cause. And it's still out there. Uh, not only do we still have the mask sales going on, although there's pretty good evidence that even worn correctly, N95s aren't going to protect you from most of what we're talking about. But this crisis industrial complex has uh, twin sisters with things like the medical industrial complex. 
How do we know that that's still going on and that billions and billions of dollars were made by a certain set of people who are using the system to continue to advance their cause? Well, gee, watch television, watch ads, and if you (coughs) feel ill, immediately ask for this drug made by the same company pushing its vaccine and its vaccine additives. This is going to continue because there are lots of people who are advantaged by taking this crisis and using it. And that was not just the medical industrial complex. You had the education industrial complex, which is now enormous. And unions thinking up ways to use the pandemic to benefit their specific union members who primarily are in public schools to force closure of all schools. And then their members could stay at home and teach at home forget the fact that it was not particularly effective, and when very few people were at risk. Now, is it likely that teachers might be more at risk than students? Absolutely. We talked about that on this show, that we could get young aides and other people who could come into the classroom and manage the classroom for the elderly teacher who might be at risk, who could teach from the television. But at least there would be somebody in the classroom with a bunch of students who would be learning, interacting, socializing, and everything else that needed to go on. And for those students who lived at home with people who were also at risk, we could put them at home. But the large majority of our kids were neither at risk for the disease nor in circumstances where they would carry it home to somebody who would be. And we lost two years of opportunity to educate, and those children lost two years of their lives, and we were part of it. This would be the main point. Totalitarians are very, very patient. We started at the beginning of the show about the fact that it took the Nazi party 20 years to take over Germany. It took the communists, and I didn't quite finish this point, about 20 years to take over uh, in the Soviet Union. They started small and kept going. In fact, the irony being the, the Bolsheviks, that's the word for meaning majority, were actually the minority, and the Mensheviks, the minority, were the majority. And yet those labels got applied to the two different groups as part of the process for the Bolsheviks, who were the minority, to take over the society. And they did. At the end of the day, bringing it back to your point, language is important. And we must use language carefully and exactly as conservatives, in my case, a libertarian conservative, because I push towards liberty and recognize that those who will take control of power, who are those who are in government tend to be, are patient. They have careers in which they're going to continue to exact exact more power and authority to have greater influence because that's how you get a raise. That's how you get a promotion. You've got to demonstrate the ability to expand your your span of control. And if you can expand your span of control within government, you can expand your span of control outside of government. And more and more of our lives get pulled into that government process. It is time for those who are on the edge of the liberty, who are on the edge of the goalposts toward the liberty side, to push back. But I would ask us to do this. Let's stop worrying about who wins and who loses, whose fault it is, who's not. And it comes up to this budget question we talked before. The Democrats and the president in particular are decrying the fact that Republicans may not in four months, in four months, may not raise the debt ceiling. And Republicans are saying, we will talk to you about the debt ceiling only when we talk about how we're creating this pile of debt. And the Democrats don't want to have that conversation. Well, a month ago. They started recognizing they had to have that conversation. Well, let's take that as a victory lap. Let's not say, ha ha, we told you we, we win. 
Who cares? Let's just say, you're right, we're right, everybody's right, death's a problem. And we need to start addressing that today. What's the president doing his State of the uh, Nation address instead? Say, Republicans have a plan to destroy your Social Security and Medicaid. Medicaid and Medicare and Social Security, Republicans are going to cut it. Now, one Republican has been floating concepts for privatizing those things. One Republican, and now it's the Republican plan. That's the kind of use of language that is absolutely destructive to this society and that we must be watchful for because the corporate media that are the friends of those who want to seek power and will regret it at the end when they no longer can speak freely as they wish, they are in league with this process. And we are watching language be abused and used by these people to advance the cause of tyranny. That is not an overstatement. When uh, violence becomes peaceful protest and peaceful protest is violence, we have a problem. When the woman who is running the branding for Levi Strauss and is raising merely the issue to keep schools open because the black and brown kids in San Francisco are going to lose out. They're the most at risk and in most in need of socialization and being in their schools. They will be disadvantaged the most. She's called a racist. That's the kind of society we've entered. And it should be hearing ringing of the danger bells day in and day out. Watch for phraseology that gets used. You know, it's a funny thing. If you read and keep up with the news, you will see certain phrases kind of come out of nowhere and then take on increasingly a kind of uh, Bader-Meinhof syndrome where they're repeated again and again and again. We saw abundance of caution as the phrase during COVID. I almost fell off my chair yesterday when I saw the spokesman for the Secretary of Defense use it with regard to the flying, um, the, the unidentified flying, flying balloons, yes. yeah. out of an abundance of, co- boy, when they talk disinformation board, watch out, watch these phrases that you thought would never be part of our vernacular. So yes, watch the distortion, but watch the neologisms, the new phraseology as well. I think the old phraseology would work just fine. I'm Seth. He's Hugh. We'll be right back. A lot of you have been hearing me talk a lot, a lot about why refi for a while now. And if you still have questions about what investing with them can do for you, they encourage you to give them a call. They're happy to put you in touch with any number of their highly, um, highly satisfied customers in the Phoenix area who have invested with them and done very, very well. Their phone number is 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. Would you like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or the Fed. Did you know you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds? And you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax deferred. That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com. The word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-Refi-34. Hugh, let me thank you for your hour with us today. And uh, let me, um, with diffidence, reclaim the microphone for myself. So take it away, sir. I have to now go look up the word diffidence again. But the the (laughs) point would be this, that uh, General Washington, ultimately President Washington, understood that we had created an experiment in which we had ordered liberty. And for me, that means that we have two goalposts that uh, hold up the entire system, and they are the extremes between liberty and order. And that we try to stay within what that constitutional framework established. 
that takes some work because every generation has to find its way between those two posts and make it into the end zone effectively. And that's a bad analogy there. But we end up in a way that the society continues and we can pass it on to the next generation. That is a tough thing to do because most people are not comfortable in a system in which it's not clear and fixed forever. And instead, we have this continuous tension and process. We've understood that for more than 250 years, effectively, as that was being created. Well, we have been moving slowly but surely towards that ordered goalpost. And in fact, in my view, we have tinkered with the system to eliminate the space by the liberty side and benefit and advantage those who would have greater liberty or would have greater order and hence tyranny. The tendency of people in government is to go toward that ordering system because that's why they were hired. And so that process will continue as a natural byproduct of the fact that you have any government at all. And the constitutional system was created to protect that. Well, now we are pushed towards giving up liberty for order. And we saw it in the extremists with the COVID uh, lockdowns. Ronald Wilson Reagan, Professor Reagan, made it very clear that liberty can be lost in a generation. That process of balancing between liberty and order is a generational effort. And President Reagan was correct. It is now up to us to push things back to toward liberty and do so responsibly so that we win this cause. And I call upon everybody listening to this show and all their friends and family. We must be the responsible adults in the room or we shall surely lose this last best hope of humanity. Bless you, Hugh, and thank you. And bless you all. And thank you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Liebson. God bless and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.